Praise Yahweh. I've got all the Scripture verses on the screen today. If you would like to follow along with me in your Bible, we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 15 for most of the lesson. Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 to open this lesson. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because Yahweh's release of debts has been proclaimed. You may collect something from a foreigner, but you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. There will be no poor among you, however, because Yahweh is certain to bless you in the land Yahweh your mighty one is giving you to possess as an inheritance. If only you obey Yahweh your mighty one and are careful to follow every one of these commands I am giving you today. When Yahweh your mighty one blesses you as he has promised you, you will lend to many nations but not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your gates in the land Yahweh your mighty one is giving you, you must not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts, is near. And you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing. He will cry out to Yahweh against you and you will be guilty. Give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, Yahweh your Mighty One will bless you in all your work and in everything you do. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. Yahweh bless His Word, His law to our hearts today. Here we are today in the last part of this series that I've been teaching on the land Sabbath or the Shemitah. I could stretch this out over more uh, sermons and cover more aspects regarding the subject, but I think I've hit enough highlights as well as details in what will be these four sermons total to get people to think. And think biblically is what I want everybody to do. Think biblically. My prayer all the time is that everyone in here would, with all that they are getting, get understanding. I realize that You all receive a lot of teaching here each week. But I think that's a good thing. I definitely don't think it's a bad thing. We're supposed to teach the Word, preach the Word. It certainly seems to be a rarity in the day that we live in. I'm talking about in churches. That's what I speak of. I think that most people have never actually heard a sermon from the Bible, even church-going people. So when they hear one for the first time, it seems a bit odd There's a lot of biblical texts read, a lot of biblical information, and a lot of practical application. That's a biblical sermon. Most quote-unquote sermons that you hear nowadays, you just flip on your TV and turn to TVN, they may never open the Bible. They may quote one sentence, part of a verse, and then go on for 30 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, you know, and you'll get a pep talk or how to be a better you or how to make every day a Friday or things like that. You know, that's what these uh, televangelists are talking about. And a lot of them talk about giving to their ministry and making a fortune off of the people. I'm thankful that I go to a congregation like this one that believes in teaching from the Bible. I was so thankful. I enjoyed Brother TJ's sermon last week on James 5, 1 through 6. I was enlightened. I was educated, I was edified, and it was from the text of the Bible. I was so thankful when I got home. I just said, thank you, Yahweh, that I got to go to assembly and hear teaching from the Bible. Um, not teaching that you know makes me want to puff myself up or, or teaching that edifies man, that's man-centered, but just teaching straight from the Bible. I enjoy that so much. My prayer is that you'll have a heart to enjoy that as well. I know that I've given you all a lot to chew on in these lessons. Some of you have been here for what's now all four lessons. Some of you have not. But I've given you a lot to chew on in these lessons, so I pray that with all that you're getting, that you'll get understanding. Now, before we move into our biblical text this evening, 
I want to give a brief review of what we've been through and what we've learned. This will be very brief. I've preached three sermons, about an hour apiece up until this point. So this will be a brief review. I did these teachings because I was being asked by several people what I thought about a book by a man named Jonathan Kahn titled The Mystery of the Shemitah. Now Jonathan Kahn believes that there's a mystery attached to the Shemitah and that here in America, for at least the last 100 years, there have been economic or other downfalls happen during a sabbatical year or at the end of each sabbatical year. Sometimes nothing happens even on his proposed sabbatical cycle, but he just kind of brushes that aside and focuses in on the big things that happen according to the cycle as he teaches it. Remember, he believes that 9-11, September 11, 2001, he believes that's tied to the mystery of the Shemitah as well as other economic crashes. And Khan believes that there will likely be a major crash or downfall this September-October. But he does place in his warning... A caveat. He always makes sure that he says, I'm not saying that it has to happen like this, but it could. How convenient to make a prophecy and say, I'm not saying that it has to come to pass, but it could. Brothers and sisters, that's not a prophet. I've been reading Jeremiah this week, and when Jeremiah speaks, Yahweh speaks through the vessel of Jeremiah, he says, thus saith Yahweh, and you know what happens? Exactly what he said was going to happen takes place. That's a true biblical prophet. As we went over in Deuteronomy 18 before in this congregation, if a prophet speaks something and says something will come to pass and it does not come to pass, the Bible says don't be afraid of him. As a matter of fact, don't listen to him. There must be repentance. There must be repentance if he's able to repent. (laughs) There must be repentance in his heart first and foremost before we give him any credence again. So Jonathan Kahn has tied these downfalls in America to what he considers to be the sabbatical cycle. During each seventh year or at the end of each seventh year, he seeks to find bad things that have occurred in our nation or also around the globe. And the problem is, well, there are many problems with Kahn's theory, or we might not even call it a theory. We might call it a hypothesis because I don't know if it even qualifies as a theory. There's many problems. The first problem is, Khan believes that the Shemitah year begins in the fall. Yahweh in the Bible teaches that it begins in the spring, in the month of Abib, which is the beginning of biblical months. We've covered that. Number two, Khan believes the Shemitah is every seven years without pause. Yahweh in the Bible teaches that the Shemitah cycle comes to a pause on the 50th year after the seventh land Sabbath or the 49th year. There are back-to-back land Sabbaths on year 49 and 50, and so therefore the cycle of seven pauses for the 50th year and then cranks back up after the 50th year. And then the years of planting, pruning, and harvesting start back up. Those are two problems with this theory that he is trying to propagate. Number three, Khan believes that the cycle never stops. Yahweh in the Bible stopped the cycle himself. We talked about this in the last lesson. Not just at the Jubilee pause, but during the Babylonian captivity where the house of Judah and some of the house of Israel scattered were in captivity to the Babylonians. The land of Canaan, the land that Yahweh gave to Israel, rested for 70 years in a row. No planting, no pruning, no harvesting for 70 straight years. Now that's a big pause, or we could say a stop to the cycle. Seventy years in a row, nobody's planting on the land. After the Judahite Israelites returned to the land of Canaan in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the cycle started back up. Remember we talked about how they they wrote that agreement and they signed the covenant and one of the things that they said they would do is make sure to rest the land on the seventh year. That was when they came back from Babylonian captivity after the 70-year pause, sanctioned by Yahweh. Khan believes the cycle never stops. Yahweh stopped the cycle and then started it back up. Number four, Khan believes that the Shemitah cycle is somehow tied to the nation or the land of America. Yahweh, in the Bible, ties the Shemitah to the land of Canaan. 
Now, men may try to add other lands in here, but there is not one single verse in the Bible that says anything about the land Sabbath applying nationally to any other land but the land of Canaan. And we're called to believe the Bible. Number five, Khan believes the curses Yahweh brings are during or at the end of each of his proposed seven years. Yahweh in the Bible brought the 70-year captivity, which let me remind you, that was one of the major curses in Leviticus 26, the captivity. He said, if you break my laws, I will send you captive into a foreign land. Yahweh brought that curse upon the Israelites not during a seventh year or at the end of a seventh year. He brought it after a 500 plus year time frame. That should show us, even in this curse, it should show us how merciful Yahweh is to His children. He let them skip 500 years without keeping a land Sabbath, continuing to call out to them time and time and time again until finally He said, we read, I've had enough. I've got to punish you because I'm true just as much to my curses as I am to my blessings. So Yahweh brought the curse not during a sabbatical year or at the end of a sabbatical year, but after a 500-year time span. So when you place what Jonathan Kahn is teaching up against what Yahweh teaches in the Bible, it does not mesh. It does not harmonize. It can be made to look somewhat good. It can be made to sound dramatic. People may flock to it by the droves, but it certainly is not biblical. It's not biblical. You cannot prove it or validate it by the Bible. And that's what should be important, shouldn't it? We should be able to look to the Bible and say, what does the Bible teach? And let's examine this man's doctrine or Matthew's doctrine by what the Bible says. But, and this is the sad part, this is the sad part, People will still believe sensationalism and hype over against or rather than the Word of Yahweh. People will still follow sensationalism. Now, I speak this next part out of love for you as a teacher, as a pastor. I want to encourage you to trust the Word of Yahweh. When we open our Bibles each week to see what Yahweh has to say, I want you to recognize, and I'm going to be teaching about this in the near future. But I want you to recognize that we're reading out of a book that has been inspired by the Creator, by the Almighty. This is not the whims and the ways of man. This is what Yahweh has sent down to us from heaven by His very breath. The Scriptures say that Yahweh's Holy Spirit carried the men, the authors of Scripture, along and they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. There's a reason why Isaiah said, Thus saith Yahweh. There's a reason why Jeremiah said, Thus saith Yahweh. And everything that they said, speaking on Yahweh's behalf, came to pass. It's because it wasn't something they thought up. Yahweh was speaking through them. And we have the words of Scripture now, today. And so when we open up our Bible and we read, we're reading the Word of Yahweh. And no matter who you hear, And no matter how loud and crafty they say it, you are to always, always, always examine what a man tells you by Holy Scripture. Always. And that takes time. Brothers and sisters, that takes study. That takes diligence. But if you love Yahweh, you will seek His face in these matters. If you love Him, you will study His Word. Study the Bible. If you don't understand something, ask an elder. Come and ask me. I will do my best to help you. Alright? I will do my best to help you. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I do study the Bible every day. And I'll study with you, and together we'll try to figure it out, that which you may not or I may not understand. Now let me follow all that up with this. Do I believe that our nation currently is a holy nation? Well, no, of course not. As a nation, we murder babies every day in the tummies of their their mothers. We've got the whole Planned Parenthood craziness going on right now. 
that upsets me very much. It's probably one of the worst things I, I do not like to think about and even talk about, but it needs to be brought up. As a nation, we murder babies. Since Roe versus Wade, I think the number is over 60 million. 60 million little babies. We say now that it's legal for two men or two women to get quote-unquote married. We ban prayer from school. We remove the Ten Commandments from courtrooms. We call evil good and good evil, light darkness and darkness light. I'm talking about as a nation that we live in today. Not necessarily here in this congregation, but as a nation as a whole. Do I believe that our nation is under a curse of Yahweh? Well, you bet I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I believe that economic downfall could come upon this nation soon? Of course it could. Of course it could. Any nation cannot dig their way deeper and deeper and deeper into debt and expect wealth to appear out of thin air. Right, Brother Dan? You can't do that. I'm talking about actual wealth, not paper money where a $100 bill weighs the exact same amount as a $1 bill. <laughs> doesn't make sense. You can't do that. So, yes, that could happen. Economic downfall could happen in this nation. But am I then going to set a date or try to concoct some kind of mystery that's nowhere found in the Bible and teach people this thing, all because I claim that the Lord spoke to me and showed me something in a mystery. Well, no way. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. Never have, by Yahweh's grace, never will. But I don't expect anything to happen this fall. Anything. I expect the economy to ebb and flow as it always does. Some people will have hard times. Others will have very prosperous times. But what we will see, for those with eyes to see, what we're going to see if you have eyes to see is this. Another false prophet who has become rich or popular from a book that everybody got hyped up with. That's what you're going to see. Nothing's going to happen and he's going to go away with a pocket full of money. That's what I expect to happen. A man by the name of Edgar Wisenant did it back in the 1980s. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come Back in 1988 or Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Can you believe that's actually a thing? 88 Reasons. A man actually took time to write a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Hal Lindsey pretty much taught the same thing in his book back then called The Late Great Planet Earth. They all predicted the quote-unquote rapture would happen in 1988. I was seven years old at that time. I'm 34 now, and I'm still kicking, right? I'm still doing fine. Harold Camping. Anybody remember him? I taught one sermon about Harold Camping. Harold Camping stirred everybody up back in 2011 saying emphatically, that the end of the world was May 21st, 2011. And I mean, there were people holding signs up, and there was a website, I think the website was called youcanknow.com, meaning you can know the day of the Messiah's return. To heck with Mark 13:32 and Matthew 24:36, where Yeshua says, no man knows, the Son doesn't even know, the angels in heaven don't know, but my Father knows only. Let's do away with that verse, or let's twist it, let's distort it. Youcanknow.com. Let's set this website up and show these dates and these figures where we can know it's May 21st, 2011. All of that was pointing in favor of Harold Camping. People standing with signs. People selling everything that they had. Getting rid of their vehicles and all that. And then May 21st came, May 20th that night. I remember I was in... Uh, South Carolina at the time, the northern part of South Carolina, we, was, we were going to sing the next morning, Saturday night. May 21st was, was Sunday morning, I guess you'd say, on the Gregorian calendar. And nothing took place. People were all huddled up in a big cafeteria that night before. And nothing took place. Had a guy even call me from Texas. And he tried to tell me he was still going to follow Mr. Camping. He said, well, he just got a few figures wrong. It's going to be October 2011. And I told this brother, I tried to tell him, I said, brother, you need to get off of this man. You need to quit listening to what he says. You need to stop following the arm of flesh and get into the Bible. Nothing happened. May 21st came and now here we are in 2015. Anybody remember Y2K? 
I remember Y2K, we stored up food. Nothing's wrong with storing up food. You consider the ant, right? The proverb says consider the ant. Nothing's wrong with being wise. Um, I'm not knocking that at all, but I'm just saying that came and it went. In the year 2012, we had a lot of talk about the end of the world with a Mayan calendar. And that came and it went. And here we are still trucking along, I believe, like Brother TJ said. Yeshua is going to return to set up His Father's kingdom here upon the earth. And the meek shall inherit the earth, right? I believe in all that. But Yahweh just teaches us to be ready. That's what Yahweh teaches us to do, be ready. First and foremost, be ready spiritually. You can have an 18-wheeler truckload full of food and not be ready spiritually. Not knocking the food that you may have ready, but you need to be ready spiritually. And what I mean by that is your life needs to be in tune with Yahweh and His law. And we need to quit worrying about everything else that's happening around us and focus and center every, all of our attention upon Yahweh's Word and strive to be obedient to His Word and pray and fast and keep our lives ready so that whenever Yeshua does return, we will have nothing to be worried about. Yes, we should study Bible prophecy. I'm not against studying Bible prophecy. It's definitely not as important as studying the law and the gospel. It's not as important. But we should seek to understand prophetic texts. But in all of that, Yahweh teaches us to what? Fear Him and keep His commandments and have the testimony of His Son. And if we do that, we have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to be afraid of. Brother Tim always brings up how that there's so many hundreds of scriptures in the Bible that says fear not. And it's talking about we don't have to be afraid of man. Yeshua said, do not fear those that can kill the body but rather fear Him that can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Yahweh is the one that we're supposed to fear. There's probably just as many hundreds of verses that talk about fearing and trembling before Yahweh. I think about my brother Daniel in Babylon, who wasn't afraid of the, of the decrees of man. He wasn't worried about Darius that made a decree that if you pray to any god or man other than Darius for 30 days, you'll be thrown into the den of lions. What did Daniel do when he found out? You read Daniel 6, he heard about the decree. What did he do? Did he stop praying? Did he pray in secret? No. He marched right back up to his window. He opened the window for everybody to see and he prayed to Yahweh. Not fearing Darius. Not fearing lions. We get afraid if we see a little mouse run across the kitchen floor. Daniel was thrown into a den of lions and Yahweh shut the lions' mouths up where they could not eat Daniel. And then the people that conspired against Daniel were thrown in and they were eaten. Their bones were crushed before their bodies even hit the floor. Talk about the fear of Yahweh for Daniel. Not the fear of Yahweh for those that die. He's our example. He should be our example. He's one of the examples in the Bible. One of the most righteous men to ever live. Consider Brother Daniel in Babylon. Do you know what Yahweh spoke through Jeremiah to tell the, the Israelites in Babylon? for 70 years. One of the things he spoke was this. He said, you tell them to build houses, plant gardens, seek the peace of the city, and you'll have peace. You're going to be here for a while. So go ahead and take care of your family and take care of yourself. Now we've got people today, I don't think that we're in the same as severe of a captivity in this nation as Daniel was in Babylon, but we got people today that scared to death of the ways of man. When we should be, what, building houses, planting gardens, following Yahweh's law, teaching our family, doing what we're doing right now, we're blessed to still have some kind of liberty to express our worship to Yahweh in the way that we're doing it right now and fear Almighty Yahweh. We need to be studying about the fear of Yahweh I'll say this, and I'll say this potently to get everybody's attention, but really to hell with these conspiracy theories. I'm not saying that some of them aren't true. I believe some of them very well could be true, but there's no reason for us to be scared of them. There's no reason for us to be fearful of them. You say, Brother Matthew, well, do you think that some people may have to give their life for Yahweh? Sure, sure. There's great stories like Daniel where Yahweh delivered him from the lion's den. But you read Hebrews 11 and it talks about that some people were sawn in half. 
Some people had to die for Yahweh. The Apostle Stephen in Acts chapter 7 had to be stoned to death for Yahweh and for Yeshua. And that might be Yahweh's mark on some of our lives. But bless Father Yahweh, if we fear Him, we don't have to worry about Him destroying our body and our soul. I think people waste so much time. People in the sacred name movement, in Hebrew roots movement, in Torah keeping movement, they waste so much time studying about things that do not matter when they could spend time in the law of Yahweh, learning it for themselves as a man, and then teaching it to their wife and their children, and being an example. Build houses, plant gardens, seek the peace of the city, Yahweh said, while you're in Babylon. Do that. We need to be ready for when Yeshua returns. That's the main thing. Be ready. And not just for when He returns, but be ready for when Yahweh decides that your clock has ticked its last talk. So even if Yeshua does not return for another 50 years, we do not know when our last day will be. And so therefore we need to be ready every day of our life, seeking His face in prayer to Yahweh. But I don't want to stop here because I've got some more Scriptures to talk about and I want to get to them. I said in part one of the series that we would begin in the Scriptures and that we would end in the Scriptures. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to end in the Scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because Yahweh's release of debts has been proclaimed. You'll probably notice just from reading this in the English why this passage is important in our study about the Shemitah year. Well, it mentions a seven-year cycle right there in verse 1, the number 7. Now, a Bible reader before getting to the book of Deuteronomy would have already read the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 25, where Yahweh talks about the seventh-year land rest and a cycle of seven years, seven times seven, which equals 49 to be exact. A Bible reader would have also read the book of Exodus before Deuteronomy, right? It comes before Deuteronomy. And it says, I don't have this one on the screen, but it says this in Exodus 23, 10 through 11. Sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But during the seventh year, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated, so that the poor among your people may eat from it, and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Now, my point is that the phrase at the end of every seven years would be a familiar phrase by the time you read up to the book of Deuteronomy. It would likewise have been a familiar phrase to the Israelites who had heard the words that Moses spoke in Exodus and also in Leviticus. They would have heard Moses speak those words before they got to Deuteronomy. Remember, Exodus and Leviticus happened at the beginning of the wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy, most of the book of Deuteronomy is actually a new moon sermon. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is teaching a sermon on the new moon, and it's the second giving of the law in the book of Deuteronomy. So you would already know about the number seven, seven years, land Sabbath, before you got to Deuteronomy 15. So as soon as you heard at the end of every seven years you would automatically think sabbatical or Shemitah. Now, some have pointed out that Deuteronomy 15 verse 1 is proof for a continuous, unbroken seven-year cycle without any pauses because it says at the end of every seven years. And that proves, they say, that you count every seven years and you don't ever stop. I take issue with that because of what we've already covered in Leviticus 25 in regards to the pause at the double land Sabbath of the 49th year and the 50th year. The last land Sabbath in the cycle and the Jubilee year. The cycle pauses at year 50 and starts back up after year 50 is over. So how are we to understand the phrase at the end of every seven years? Well, it's very simple. It's not difficult. You understand it just like it says. During 49 years, think about a 49-year time frame, you have an end of every seven years in that time frame. Seven times. Then you have a 50th year, and that cycle pauses, 
and then you start back up one through seven, seven more times. And at the end of every one of those seven years, you cancel debts according to this text. So Deuteronomy 15 is easily understood when we consider the more detailed Leviticus 25 to drive our understanding. Anytime you study the Bible, remember this, and you have a passage, all passages are true, but some passages contain more information than others. Always let the passages that are more detailed drive the understanding of the subject. Don't go to the passage that says the least about the subject and try to form your doctrine from just that text. Go to the detailed understandings. Just like with the feast days. In Deuteronomy 16, the Bible talks about the feast days, but there's not as much detail about the feast days in Deuteronomy 16 as there is in Leviticus 23. There's more detail. So let Leviticus 23 drive your understanding of Deuteronomy 16. Same thing here. Now, verse 1 says to cancel debts. Verse 2 says this is how you do it. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent to his neighbor. The word creditor here is literally bail in Hebrew, baal. We say bail. It refers to a lord or master over someone else. The phrase in Hebrew is literally baal maseh, which means a holder of a loan, the master of a loan. So we have one man who has loaned his neighbor or brother some wealth, money, probably silver in that day. That was the common currency for the Israelites. Silver, gold as, as also, but silver to a greater extent. This cannot be speaking of money that you gave to your neighbor. That would not make any sense because the entire context is about lending money to your neighbor with the understanding that he will pay you back. That's what this passage is about. Psalm 37 verse 21 says this, The wicked man borrows and does not repay, but the righteous one is gracious and giving. So what we have in Deuteronomy 15, 1-2, is someone who was in need, probably poor, according to verses 4, 7, and 11. We'll get to in a second. And they needed a loan. The more well-off financially Israelite lent his poor brother, Israelite, some money. Notice that Deuteronomy 15.2 says that the holder of the loan is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because Yahweh's release of debts has been proclaimed. You see that phrase, release of debts? That's one Hebrew word, and you should definitely know it by now. The Shemitah. Now, before we move on to the next verse, I want everybody to consider something because... I didn't realize this when I first got into this chapter, but there's various views among scholars and commentators of how this release of debt works. So we want to get to that now. One view is, I take this from Benson's commentary, one view is this. This cannot be meant of money lent to those who had borrowed it for the purchase of lands, trade, or other improvements, and who were able to pay. For nothing could have been more absurd than to have extinguished such debt whereby the borrower was enriched. But it must be understood of money lent to an Israelite who was in poor circumstances, as appears from the verses. So that's one view. In other words, Benson believes that it's lending to Israelites in poor circumstances, but not for lending to, let's say, buy a home. Now let me give you an illustration. Let's say I wanted to buy a home. We'll keep it low, $20,000. And Brother Tim, I went to Brother Tim. I, I said, Brother Tim... I work a job, I know that, but I'm wondering if you got $20,000 to lend me so I can buy this home. Brother Tim says, sure, I'll lend you $20,000, you can pay me back over a period of time. He can't charge me any interest because I'm a brother, but I'm going to pay him back over a period of time. Well, it really doesn't make any sense for me in that scenario, I don't think, now that I've studied, it doesn't make any sense for me to ever be released from that debt that I owe Tim. That loan was given to enrich my life, and I now own the house. I own that $20,000 house now. I paid it free and full, and I've got to pay Tim back his money. If I'm released of paying Tim on the seventh year, if the seventh year rolls around and I haven't paid Tim all $20,000, I still have my $20,000 house, and I'm able to pay Tim over more time, but Tim is gypped. 
I said, Tim, well, no, sorry. I only, only got you paid that 12000 I've still got the house. It's wonderful. It's doing great for me, but you're out 8000 bucks. That doesn't seem logical to me. I don't think, now that I've studied, I don't think that's what this law is referring to. I agree with Benson's view. I think that this applies to Israelites who are poor and they're needy and they don't have. They need a loan to get through difficult times. They remain poor, so when the seventh year comes, they are released from their debt because they're poor. And we'll see more about the poor in this context. I'm not just pulling the poor out of a hat here. We're going to see the whole chapter is talking about the poor. That's what it's referring to. Now, I agree with Benson on that view. Let's look at a second view that I'll go ahead and tell you from the get-go. I do not agree with this next view. When I first saw it, I thought, wow, that might be true. The more I researched, I don't believe that he's right. This next guy is Matthew Poole, old commentator. I want to quote from his commentary. Poole believes that the dead is released for only that year. In other words, during the seventh year, the borrower's debt is suspended, but after the seventh year, he has to pick it back up, owing by law what he borrowed. Poole writes this, "...shall release it, not absolutely and finally forgive it, but forbear it for that year, as may appear, because the word doth not signify a total dismission or acquitting, but an intermission for a time, as Exodus 23.11. He shall not exact it, as it here follows, force it from him by course of law or otherwise to wit that year, which is easily understood out of the whole context." Well, it was easily understood, at least in Matthew Poole's mind. I don't think it's quite as easy as he says... Poole is equating Deuteronomy 15.2 with Exodus 23.11. I read that moments ago. Exodus 23.11 is definitely speaking of only a one-year time span. We know that because it's talking about letting the land rest for that year. It specifies this in Leviticus 25. And then in Leviticus 25, what does it say? When the seventh year is over, you start back doing what? Planting, pruning, harvesting. It specifies that explicitly in Leviticus 25. I think that Poole is saying, just like the poor are free to come in and take anything from the volunteer crop on the seventh year, that their debt is released on the seventh year. But I'm not sure I see the equation here, though, that it's only released on the seventh year. Deuteronomy 15.2 seems to me to be saying, cancel the debt. Can it really be called a cancellation if it's picked back up after the seventh year is over with? I don't think so. Furthermore, why would any Israelite have a stingy heart towards his poor brother if he would be repaid after the seventh year was finished? Let's think about this. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8, 9, 10, and 11. says this, If there is a poor person among you, notice poor, one of your brothers within any of your gates in the land Yahweh your mighty one is giving you, you must not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Stingy. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. Well, the seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, and you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing. He will cry out to Yahweh against you, and you will be guilty. Give to him, and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, Yahweh your mighty one will bless you in all your work and in everything you do, for there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. Now I want you to notice, all through, it's the poor of the land being discussed and they're juxtaposed, they're, they're mentioned in contrast to the, the more wealthy, because the more wealthy is the one that's lending to the poor. Now, it would not make any sense, at least it seems to me, you can be your own judge as you study the Scriptures, it doesn't make any sense to me for any wealthy Israelite to be stingy towards his poor brother if the one that lends the money is going to get paid back after the Shemitah is over with anyhow. Why? Because let's say I loan Tim. Let's say Tim's a poor brother in the land and I loan him $5,000 and the Shemitah year's coming up. Let's say we're in the sixth year of the cycle. It's getting close. And I know there's no way that Tim, he's poor, but I know there's no way he's going to be able to pay me back $5,000 
There's only six months left to the Shemitah. Well, if I'm going to get paid back from Tim after the Shemitah anyhow, why the stinginess? I'll let my $5,000 go. and he's going to pay. I, I may have to forego it for a year, but I'm going to get it after that year. I'm going to hunt him down and say, you still owe me. It doesn't make any sense for there to be Yahweh saying, don't be stingy. But what does make sense is, is if the debt is canceled, then it makes sense for Yahweh to say, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. He's in need. Now, it might be easy to loan money to a poor Israelite brother if you're at the first year in the seven years. Let's say you loan a poor brother $5,000 and you're in the first year and you think, well, he'll be able to pay me back because he's got six years to do it. You won't be as stingy, will you? But what if you're in the sixth year of that seven-year cycle and you've only got six more moons or months left to go to the Shemitah? And he comes to you and he says, my family's in need. We have very little to eat. My children need clothes. I need a loan. Yahweh says, don't be stingy. You know the Shemitah year is close and you know you're going to have to cancel his debt. Do not be stingy towards your poor brother. Give him what he needs or else he'll cry out to Yahweh and Yahweh will reprimand you. You kind of see the point that I'm getting at here? Matthew Poole continues. This is another reason he thinks it's only for that one year. He says, because the person releasing is called a creditor and his communicating to him what he desires and needs is called lending here. And in Deuteronomy 15.8, whereas it were giving and the person giving it were no creditor but a donor if it were to be wholly forgiven to him. My comments is that I don't agree. The reason the lender is not called a giver is because for the time up until the seventh year, the money is lent in order to be paid back. That's why he's called a lender. In other words, if I lend a, pure, a poor brother 1,000 pieces of silver during the first year, he is that poor brother is to seek to pay me back 1,000 pieces of silver during the six years leading up to the Shemitah. Why? Because it's the wicked that borrows and does not pay again. I lend that to that poor brother. He's to seek to pay me back. The poor Israelites would seek to pay back their loan. It's just that sometimes they were unable to pay it in full and Yahweh gave them leeway because they were poor. And when the Shemitah came, their debt was canceled. Paid in full. Matthew pulls third point. He says, because the reason of this law is temporary and peculiar to that year, wherein there being no sowing nor reaping, they were not in a capacity to pay their debts. My comments is, Matthew Poole is making the point here that because the poor Israelites weren't allowed to sow or reap during the sabbatical year, they didn't have any way to work to pay their loan back. So it was only suspended for that year, and then once they could work again, they could start paying it back after the sabbatical. I don't agree. That's not true. That's not totally true. Sowing and reaping was not the only way to make money or pay back a loan. They could work a job just as easily to pay back a loan, even during the seventh year if it were not released by Yahweh's command. So this point does not hold water with me because the Israelites, if allowed, could pay back a loan with, um, without planting and harvesting as their work. There was other work that they could do to pay the loan back. Matthew pulls fourth and final point. He says, because it seems unjust and unreasonable and contrary to other scriptures which require men to pay what they borrow. That's Psalm 37, 21. Yet I deny not, notice what he says here at the end, yet I deny not that in case of poverty the debt was to be forgiven. But that was not virtue of this law, but of other commands of God. I, I don't agree with that. I think it was virtue of this law in Deuteronomy 15. That in case of poverty, the poor brother was forgiven of his debt. So I disagree with Poole's reasoning here. I do agree that it is unjust to not pay back what one borrows. If I borrow money from Brother Tim and I don't pay him back, the Bible says the wicked borrow and do not pay in return. But the righteous are gracious and given. In that case, Brother Tim was righteous. He was gracious and gave me what I asked him for. I'm wicked for not paying him back. That's Psalm 37, 21. But that's talking about someone who makes no attempt to pay him back. Let's reverse it. Let's say I'm the poor brother now and Brother Tim loans me money, $1,000, let's say, 1,000 pieces of silver, and I'm making the effort 
to pay him back. You ever loan money to somebody? This ever happened to you? You loan money to some people, and they'll pay you back little by little whatever they can. They'll call you up and say, I know I don't got it all, but I've got some to pay you back. I've got $100 this week to pay you back. And the next week they might have 25 The next week they might have $70 to pay you back. I respect people like that. You have some people that you loan money to, and you never hear from them again. The wicked borrow and does not repay. If Brother Tim loans me that money, he's going to forgive me of my debt if there's any left at the Shemitah year. But as long as I'm making an effort to pay him back what I'm able, that means I'm not a wicked man. But if I refuse to pay, and he has to call me up and say, Brother Matthew, it's been a year now. You haven't even given me five bucks. I don't even have five shekels to show for what I let you have. Well, what am I doing? I'm being a wicked brother right there. I'm not treating him fairly. I'm not treating him justly. I should make an effort to pay back what I borrowed. Here's a third view. We went through Benson's, who I do agree with, Matthew Poole, who I do not agree with, John Gill. I do agree with John Gill. He says, Some think this was only a release of debts for this year, in which there was no plowing nor sowing, and so a poor man could not be in any circumstances to pay his debts, but might be exacted afterwards. But it rather seems to be a full release, so as the payment of them might not be demanded, neither this year nor afterwards. My comments are, I think this is the best way to understand the law. I think it is. The law, number one, applied to the poor Israelites in the land. Once again, not to me enriching myself. The example I gave on needing to buy a house, I don't think it would apply to me in that case. But the poor Israelites in the land. And number two, it was a full remission of their debt on the Shemitah year, on the sabbatical year. I also found where Philo, a first century Israelite, he commented on the law in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 2. In his writings titled Special Laws 2, parenthesis 71, I quote from the Young's translation of Philo. Listen to what Philo said. This is how he understood the law of canceling debts back in the first century A.D. or even B.C. On every seventh year, he ordains a remission of debts. Now notice that sounds like a cancellation, not just a suspension. Continuing on, assisting the poor. Notice Philo mentions the poor. And inviting the rich to humanity that so they, from their abundance, giving to those who are in want or need, may also look forward to receiving services from them in the case of any disaster happening to them. Philo's point, as he elaborates, he goes on to say that the wealthy Israelite, when he loans freely out of his abundance to the poor Israelite, is making friends with the man. And so that if he ever gets into a bind or a tight, maybe not even financially, but he needs help with something, the poor man may say, well, he helped me out, let me help him out in return. But I want you to notice, my point in bringing up this writing in Philo is just to show that he interpreted Deuteronomy 15 in the first century as speaking of loans to poor Israelites, poor Israelites, and also a remission or cancellation of debt rather than a suspension. Philo doesn't call it a suspension. It seems that it would be called that if it was only for one year. He calls it a remission, wiping away a cancellation. So I think that's the best way to understand the law in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 2, in light of all the points that I've made, and especially in light of verses 7 through 11 about the stinginess of the wealthy brother. Let's look at the next verse in Deuteronomy 15, verse 3. It says, you may collect something from a foreigner, but you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. Now, this sermon's purpose is not to give a detailed study of the word foreigner or stranger. The Hebrew word is nakri. I believe, from my studies, that there is more than one definition of the word nakri in the Hebrew language. Maybe I'll do a teaching on that one day. Now's not that day. But I believe that there's different definitions for that word depending on the context in which it's used. For now, in what we're discussing in this context, it should be obvious that the meaning of foreigner here is a non-Israelite in this context. Verse 2 talked about releasing the debt of your neighbor or brother. And verse 3 goes on to say that you may collect your debt from a foreigner. The context is on the seventh year. So, if you have a foreigner that lives close to you, 
and you have loaned him or her money, when the, the Shemitah, even if they're poor, when the Shemitah comes, you could, of your own volition, release their debt, but it's not required. You don't have to. You can collect their debt, even on the sabbatical year, from a foreigner. This is similar to what we read in Deuteronomy 23, 19-20, where it says this, quote, Do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner, that's the same Hebrew word, nakri. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother interest, so that Yahweh your Mighty One may bless you in everything you do in the land you are entering to possess. There again, this is not necessarily dealing with the Shemitah year, but if I loan Brother TJ, let's say Brother TJ is a poor brother, which he's not. <laughs> I had to make him smile. We're getting a little long-winded here. If I loan a poor brother Israelite $1,000, it's a loan. He's to pay me back $1,000. Not $1,001. Not $1,000 and one penny. Not any interest. Any usury. However, if I loan a foreigner, a non-Israelite, $1,000, I can tell him, say, look, I'm going to loan you $1,000, but I'm going to require that you pay me back 1100 He may say, well, that seems not fair. Well, how do we judge what's fair? By Yahweh's word. Yahweh says you can charge interest to the foreigner, but not to the brother, the fellow Israelite. Clearly here then, in this case, the Israelites were differentiated from the foreigners. They were allowed to charge the foreigners interest or usury, and they were allowed to collect debts from the foreigners on the Shemitah year. Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 6. There will be no poor among you, however, because Yahweh is certain to bless you in the land Yahweh your Mighty One is giving you to possess as an inheritance. If only you obey Yahweh your Mighty One and are careful to follow every one of these commands I am giving you today, when Yahweh your Mighty One blesses you as He has promised you, you will lend to many nations, but not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. Verse 4 should be peculiar. It should sound strange to you by now because it says there will be no poor among you. Now that doesn't make any sense because this whole sermon we've been talking about poor among the people of Israel. The very text has talked about in verses 7 through 11, there will never cease to be poor people in your land. How do we harmonize the verses? It has to be a harmony, right? I don't think Moses had a brain lapse when he was writing this stuff. Right? <laughs> i got to laugh out of Sister Marine on that one. It could be here that the HCSB that I'm reading from is not the best translation. That's, that's a possibility. matter of fact, I think that it's not. Notice two other translations of the first part of verse 4. The KJV says, Save when there shall be no poor among you. J.P. Green says, Except when there shall be no one in need among you. And there are other translations that say the same thing. The understanding would then be that the law of remission of debts, the Shemitah, does not apply when Yahweh is blessing the entire nation and there's no poor people among them. That's at least one way to interpret Deuteronomy 15 verse 4. Another way of looking at it is this, is it could mean to the end that there be no poor among you. Now, why do I say that? I'm not changing anything. To the end that there be no poor among you is one way to translate the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 into English. The point would then be that Israel was to keep this law towards their poor brother to the end. That's literally how the Hebrew reads. To the end, which means for that purpose, to that goal, that there be no one poor in the nation. Once the rich brother lent to the poor brother, guess what happened? The poor brother was no longer in need for that circumstance. So it was to that end, to that goal. And then we see verses 5 through 6, speaking of Yahweh blessing the nation if they are obedient. In other words, all of this will work out wonderfully if, this is key, if as a nation, a nation, you obey my commandments, statutes, and judgments. It is true that we'll be blessed individually for obedience or cursed individually for disobedience. But most of the verses that talks about blessings and cursings in the Old Testament is talking about Israel as a nation. Deuteronomy 28 really is not talking about individual blessings and cursings. It's really not. 
It's talking about Israel as a nation. When you obey my laws as a nation, as a general rule, governmentally, you will be blessed. Why? Because any nation that follows, let's just say, the Ten Commandments and their respective statutes and judgments, the blessings are embedded within the commandment. They're already there. So if you follow the law as a nation, imagine, imagine if as a nation we followed Yahweh's law. Leaps and bounds, a thousand times better than what we've got today. Basically the laws of man, which is another God, really. So this is talking about as a nation, Yahweh is saying. And that kind of brings me to my closing point in this whole series. My final consideration. How does all of this apply to us today? You know, we went through a whale of a lot tonight. And in, in all four of these sermons, we've studied a lot about the law in regards to the land Sabbath. And now we see that part of the sabbatical year is the release of the debts, the cancellation of the debts that you give to the poor brother. How does this apply to us today? What's the practical application? Much of this land Sabbath law and release of debt law applied to Israel as a nation in the land of Canaan. How are we, if at all, to apply it to ourselves today in different lands, scattered throughout the entire earth now, under man's government, rather than under a theonomy? A theonomy would be ideal. Don't get me wrong. I would love to live in a nation that was ruled by Yahweh's law. One day we will when the Messiah returns. Obviously we don't now. We've gotten further and further away from that since the early 1600s when as societies more or less lived more in accordance with Yahweh's law. What are we to do now? How does all this apply to us? Think about it. I want you to think about this. Think about the Jubilee year. Remember, in the year of Jubilee, the land returned back to the original family tribe or clan. Now, the only way for that to work is, one, everybody is on the same cycle, the same 50-year cycle. And number two, if it's the original land of Canaan that Yahweh apportioned to the 12 tribes of Israel. He gave them their property and gave boundaries. It's written in the book of Numbers. The only way that that works is in those two cases. But I want you to think about Daniel in Babylon. I mentioned him before. I'm going to mention him again. Do you believe, it's a question to ask yourself, do you believe that Daniel, while living in Babylon, was able to keep the law of the land Sabbath and Jubilee and even the release of debts? Question. Now certainly he could keep laws that were to him individually. We know he kept the dietary law. We know that because in Babylon he refused to eat the king's meat. And I'm sure there were many other laws he kept personally. Laws like don't steal, don't kill or murder, don't commit adultery, don't bow down to idols, remember the Sabbath. Those are all laws that he could keep individually as a person. But there were other laws that were designed for national Israel. Now maybe, maybe, just maybe, while in Babylon, Daniel maybe had a small garden. Maybe he did. My guess is that if he did, he probably did not plant in that garden for more than six years in a row. That's my guess. That's what I think Daniel would have done. We're not told one way or the other, though. We're not told. So that's my opinion. That's all it is, is an opinion. I bring this all up so that we ponder upon this as individuals as we study our Bible and as we pray about these things. I realize as a student of Yahweh's law, there must be a reason Yahweh did not want His land worked for more than six years in a row. There's got to be a reason behind that commandment. Whether I understand it or not, there's a reason and it's for our good. It's for our benefit because all the law is for our good. I realize that land... Even today, you talk to farmers, you talk to people that are studied in this area, I realize that land must rest in order to not get depleted of its nutrients. Because when you work land over and over and over and over again without resting it, then you have to pump in synthetic material in order to get crops to grow, whereas you could keep from doing a lot of that if you just simply rested the land. And this is why a lot of farmers even today rest their land and rotate their crops. 
it's healthy to rest farmland. So it seems to me that would apply to any garden anywhere. Therefore, I choose, Brother Matthew, the way I do this is I never plant on my land more than six years in a row. I give my land a Sabbath rest. But, but, is that really keeping the land Sabbath that Yahweh gave in Leviticus 25? Well, after studying this subject, I really don't believe that it is. I believe I should continue my practice, and that's something you'll have to decide for yourself. I think that I'm looking to the law, and I'm finding principles within the law to apply in this area of my life. But I cannot say that it is a complete following of the law in Leviticus 25. I believe Yahweh's law in Leviticus 25 applied to Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation. And I believe that it applied to the special land that Yahweh gave to the Israelites as a nation. And that He brought some of them back to after the Babylonian captivity once again as a nation. All on the same schedule, knowing where the tribes are to be apportioned. Does this mean that the laws in Leviticus 25 are abolished? Not at all. No. Think about this. Were the laws of Leviticus 25 abolished when Daniel and the house of Judah were in Babylon and the house of Israel was in Assyria? No. Not at all. It's just that certain laws call for certain particulars and parameters. Do I believe that we should lend to our poor brothers? Absolutely. Should our poor brothers pay us back when we lend to them? Absolutely. Unless we tell them it's a gift. That's perfectly acceptable. But there's nothing wrong with lending and expecting to be paid back to. A poor brother that borrows money should seek to pay back the money that he borrows. Could we keep track of that poor brother owing us for six years and then forgive him on a seventh year that we count. Could we do that? Yes, we could. We could do that. And that's a good principle that looks to Yahweh's law as a guide. But again, that's not the fullness of Yahweh's Shemitah law in action. That's not precisely how He designed it to operate as a nation. Brothers and sisters, we've got to submit to what Yahweh's law actually says and then believe it when we read and study it and not add to it or take away from it. Many laws are very easy to apply individually. I've named several earlier, and there are several more. But some laws are more difficult because they were given to a nation in a land that was a theonomy. That means a government ruled by Yahweh's law. And the only way for those laws to be kept like they were intended to be kept is under that theonomy. We can still look to those national laws as a guide and follow them in principle as individual families. We can still do that. But we cannot say that we're observing them in their exactness as Yahweh originally intended. I hope that these lessons have been a blessing to you. I've enjoyed studying each of them. I know I've went a little bit long some people say may say a lot bit long tonight. But I've enjoyed studying for these lessons because I love the Bible. And I love to study the Bible. And I love to learn. I love to know. My prayer, I know you've received a lot, but my prayer is that, as King Solomon said, with all that you're getting, you get understanding. That's my prayer. With all that you've received, you receive understanding. I want you to continue to meditate upon all these points in all four lessons, as Yahweh allows you to. Go back and re-listen to them. Open your Bible. Study this subject out for yourself. Listen to them again and again if needed. Learn what the Scriptures say, and then, then when you do that, you'll be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And when somebody comes up to you, a year, two years from now, and they say, Lisa, I was reading the other day about the sabbatical year. You know anything about that? You can say, yes, I do. Let's sit down and I'll share with you what I know about the sabbatical year. Versus somebody asking you and you're saying, I don't have a clue about it. I know Brother Matthew taught on it, but I really wasn't listening and wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> no. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. 
accurately handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. It will be a blessing to you, and you'll be excited to be able to share that piece of knowledge with that other person. It's not just on this subject, but any subject. And I'm not claiming that I know everything about all subjects in the Bible. It takes time. But it is a joyous occasion when somebody asks you a question about a subject and you've studied that subject and you can say, yes, I have studied that. Let's sit down and do a Bible study on it. Let me share you what Yahweh has taught me through His Word. Versus saying, I don't really know. I've been watching a lot of football lately and haven't really been studying the Bible. That's a workman that what? Needs to be ashamed. He's, uh, that word means you blush because you're embarrassed. You don't really know. See? Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you and I'm so thankful for all these beautiful, wonderful brothers and sisters in this congregation. I thank you for Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, two primary texts about the land Sabbath. I pray, Yahweh Father, that you continue to give me more insight and more knowledge about this. I pray that you continue to allow each and every individual to study about this in their time and lead them and guide them at their time and at their pace. I know we're not all on the same, we don't all have everything on the same plate at the same time. Yahweh, Father, as you lead and guide by your Spirit, uh, may we receive what your Word has to say about this subject. Father, we thank you for another Sabbath. Bring us back here next week to uh, do this all over again, to study more about your Word, and to, to love your Word, and learn your Word, and learn how it makes application to our life. I love you, Father Yahweh, through your son Yeshua.